You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. We had passed Savage's Station, where cords upon cords of hardtack and bacon were given to the flames and were nearing White Oak Swamp when the column halted. Aides passed rapidly back and forth, and that nameless feeling, foreboding a general engagement, pervaded the ranks. Sure enough, General Brooks, mounted on Old Baldy, countermarched the brigade to Savage's Station, where we were deployed in line of battle, supported by the 2nd, 3rd, 4th, and 6th Vermont volunteers composing our brigade. The order came, fix bayonets, and with unloaded muskets we were ordered forward. We passed the station, and the brigade swept forward in line of battle, column of brigade, and we entered the woods. Everything was quiet, not a shot was heard, nothing but the low, quiet, nervous commands of the officers, and we began to ask ourselves if there had not been another mistake and there were, after all, to be no uninvited guests present. But soon we got an introduction to them. The first intimation we received that we were expected was when we saw a big butternut-colored chap step from behind a tree and deliberately fire, and then get. Poor Bolster caught it through the head, and then the fight became general. With unloaded muskets, we left the woods and entered a clearing to find ourselves confronted by a rebel battery supported by a line of infantry, Here the line was halted and dressed under a perfect storm of canister and musket balls and ordered to load and fire at will. Good God, as I remember it now, I cannot help but wondering why, with an old-fashioned Vermont hurrah, we did not charge and take that battery, but the order was commence firing, and we did. Men tore savagely at their cartridges and cursed because their guns were foul and it took longer than usual to ram the charge home but the fire of the battery began to slacken. The rebel supports moved up, and the whole line broke into flame and smoke. If anything, the din increased, but the hiss of the mini was not so offensive as the howl and whir of canister. A few moments, apparently, but in reality, an hour passed, and as I looked around, I saw not the solid line of familiar faces, but here and there little groups of men, black as powder and dirt could make them, still tearing cartridges and nervously ramming them home, while scattered on the ground lay more than were in line. Private Isaac M. Burton, 5th Vermont, Brooks Brigade. I was out all day yesterday on the field of battle. The enemy had abandoned his works during the night, and with his whole remaining force was endeavoring to reach the James River. We had 50,000 men in pursuit of him. Just at six o'clock, our advance overtook a portion of his rear guard, and a fight of about two hours ensued, the result of which we as yet do not know, but the firing was very brisk on both sides. His entrenched camps occupied a larger space than the entire city of Richmond, and he fled, leaving all his tents standing, but destroying a vast quantity of stores. I rode through his abandoned works, which were very strong, and which terror alone could have induced the abandonment, for we could only have taken them by the loss of thirty thousand men. Overcoats, blankets, flannel sheets, soda crackers, nuts, gingerbread, bayonets, broken guns, empty bottles and tins, tin cups, boots, books, newspapers, etc., were scattered over the camps and roads for miles. Our troops will, I trust, push him to a general engagement, in which case we hope to capture or kill the principal portion of his army. Thus has this boastful and bullying horde of barbarians been driven from its stronghold before Richmond. They are today twenty-two miles off at least, in full retreat, with fifty thousand men in pursuit. Prisoners from them represent their army as demoralized and sick of the fight. This day and tomorrow will be eventful. If we crush out McClellan completely, the backbone of this campaign will be broken, and crimination and recrimination will be the order among the papers and politicians of the Yankee thieves. 
As it is, even thus far, success has been great and glorious. Our men fought like heroes. Stephen R. Mallory, Confederate Secretary of the Navy. Hey everyone, thanks for downloading episode 163 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all, welcome to the podcast. At the end of the last episode, we said that in the aftermath of the Battle of Gaines Mill, Robert E. Lee wanted to follow up his hard-earned victory. However, he was forced to wait until he learned something definitive about McClellan's plans. But by the morning of Sunday, June 29, 1862, Lee had become convinced that McClellan was retreating south to the James River. McClellan was indeed heading for the James. The commander of the Army of the Potomac was rattled by the offensive punches Lee had thrown north of the Chickahominy. At the same time as Lee had taken the offensive north of the river, ostentatious demonstrations of Confederate strength south of the Chickahominy, orchestrated by Magruder, had fed Little Mac's worst fears. He felt confirmed in his wildly inaccurate estimates that the enemy had 200,000 men to put in against him, and he was certain the blows north of the Chickahominy had only been preliminary to a knockout blow that would come south of the river. In fact, though, Little Mac was fleeing from an army that was four-fifths the size of his own. But given what he believed, and already defeated in his own mind, McClellan decided the Army of the Potomac would leave its entrenchments before Richmond and abandon its supply base at White House Landing and would move south to a new position on the James River where a flotilla of federal gunboats could provide protection. Little Mac was careful to label the movement a change of base, but it didn't take long for his soldiers to figure out that the term was really just a euphemism for retreat. And so, early on the morning of June 28th, the Federals began withdrawing. Long columns of men, guns, horses, cattle, and wagons streamed south to the two bridges over White Oak Swamp. According to McClellan's plan, two of his five corps would take the lead in the movement and establish a defensive position on Malvern Hill on the north bank of the James, while the other three corps would hold position to slow Lee's pursuit and cover the White Oak Swamp crossings. Then those three corps would withdraw in their turn. As we mentioned last time, although the Federals started retreating on Saturday and Lee was forced to wait nearly 24 hours until he figured out where the Army of the Potomac had gone, McClellan mismanaged the march and so squandered nearly all of the advantage gained by his head start. This set up the specter of several more battles in which the Federals would have to hold off furious Confederate attacks before reaching the safe shelter of the gunboats on the James. By the time he awoke before daylight on Sunday, June 29th, Robert E. Lee had become convinced that McClellan was heading to the James, and he sent a message to Jefferson Davis saying as much. By the time he sent that message to Davis, Lee had already issued orders for his divisions to pursue the enemy. Lee devised a rather intricate plan for June 29th, which he hoped would set the stage for the destruction or capture of McClellan's army the following day. Magruder was in the best position to take the initiative on Sunday, and so Lee would send Prince John east, directly down the Williamsburg Road, to attack McClellan's retreating army. Lee hoped that Magruder's attack would force McClellan to stop his retreat in order to fend off the threat. To assist Magruder, Lee ordered Stonewall Jackson to rebuild the Grapevine Bridge, cross the Chickahominy, and approach the enemy army from the north, putting Jackson on Magruder's left flank. While Jackson and Magruder were tying down McClellan, Lee would have others move to cut off Little Mac's retreat south of White Oak Swamp. Benjamin Uger was to move his division down the Charles City Road, which ran southeast and went to the crossroads village of Glendale, below the exit from the swamp. 
The longest and hardest marching, though, would belong to A.P. Hill and James Longstreet. Lee had them march back to Newbridge and head south past the Williamsburg and Charles City roads until they came to Darbytown Road, which they would follow until it merged with the Longbridge Road. The Longbridge Road also led to Glendale from the west, while Luget would approach it from the northwest. Lee knew that A.P. Hill and Longstreet had too far to go to be of any use in any fighting on Sunday, but he anticipated using them as his primary offensive punch on Monday at the crucial crossroads at Glendale. Meanwhile, Lee kept Dick Yule's division on the north side of the Chickahominy, watching the roads over the river, just to be sure McClellan didn't fool him and head that way. Lee's plan for the 29th was complex, with a lot of moving parts. The plan required three separate elements, Magruder, Jackson, and Nuget, to hit their marks properly in order to be successful. Additionally, Lee was operating on supposition, since he didn't know exactly where McClellan's different corps were located. Nevertheless, he guessed accurately that they were moving south through White Oak Swamp and past Glendale. Lee also knew that McClellan had a 24-hour head start, so in order for Lee to make up for that lost time, speed on the part of his own subordinates was crucial. The next day, an extremely hot one, while we were in line of battle in the blazing sun, I witnessed a piece of recklessness, or heroism if you choose to call it so, on the part of Captain Lettendahl of Company A from Mobile. The twelfth of Alabama was stretched out, and the men were lying prone upon the ground, enduring the sun's rays, and suffering greatly from the heat. Suddenly their attention was drawn to a novel sight, perhaps never a similar one was seen in any battle. At the end of Company A, an umbrella was stretched over the prostrate form of Captain Jules Lettendahl. Soon the notice of the enemy's artillery was attracted by the umbrella, and they began aiming their Napoleon guns at that portion of the regiment, and the balls began to strike in dangerous proximity to it and the brave men near it. The men of the other companies began to call aloud, Shut down that umbrella! Close it up, you old fool! The cries had no influence upon Lettendahl or his company, and when some of the other companies, indignant at his willingness to expose his comrades to the fire of the enemy by his efforts to protect himself from the blazing rays of the burning sun, called to him that they would come and shut up the umbrella if he didn't do it, and a few rose and started toward the captain as if to carry out their threat, some of his company rose to meet them, and swore that he should keep the umbrella raised overhead if he wanted to, and it was none of their damned business. This state of affairs continued for some little time, but Lettendahl kept up his shade, and was totally oblivious to the commands and entreaties of the men, and his own company humored him, laughing at his persistence. When we were ordered to move forward, the captain, with his two hundred and fifty pounds of mass, streaming with perspiration, continued to hold aloft his umbrella. Captain Robert E. Park, 12th Alabama, Rhodes Brigade Everywhere were countless arms, equipments, and stores of every sort. Never was an army so magnificently equipped as this. Their appliances were so elaborate that really our men could not devise the uses of many of them. I remember well that night we were very hungry and busied ourselves making an elaborate supper of plunder taken in the field. Among other conquests, someone produced a substance resembling grits or small hominy, which we proceeded to boil in a kettle. This being half filled and set to boil, very soon it began to swell until the vessel was filled and also several others. Afterwards, I carried it always in my haversack to make soup. One spoonful would expand until it made a quart of thick gruel. As far as we could judge, it was composed of Irish potatoes, beans, and etc., skillfully prepared, then granulated. We also found vast quantities of desiccated vegetables in tin cans, which were a great treat to our famished fellows. My pen is unable to tell of the wonderful equipment of the enemy army, of its perfect military stores, the lavish manner in which the individual soldiers were equipped. All this made the more striking from the great and necessary difference existing in our army. Captain Eugene Blackford, 
5th Alabama, Rhodes Brigade. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off. An eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. In the early morning hours of Sunday, June 29th, Longstreet had sent two engineer officers across the Chickahominy to investigate the Union position facing Magruder at Golding's Farm, where some sharp skirmishing had taken place over the previous two days during Magruder's demonstrations. Shortly after dawn on Sunday, though, Longstreet's engineers discovered the Union field works were empty, proving to Lee that the enemy retreat had begun. At almost the same time that Lee received that news, he received a note from Magruder announcing his intention of attacking Golding's farm. In a moment of levity, Lee sent a humorous response back, telling Magruder to be sure not to hurt Longstreet's two officers when he attacked the empty enemy position. It was once he knew McClellan was on the move that Lee sent his division commanders their marching orders, and then Lee crossed the Chickahominy to speak with Magruder. Despite Lee's witty note, Magruder hadn't been wrong about the Golding's farm position, since when he last scouted it very early on Sunday morning, the Union troops were still there. Only at about 3 a.m. did they begin quietly retreating. With little preparation, McClellan had set the retreat in motion the day before with Erasmus Key's Fourth Corps and the supply trains moving south through White Oak Swamp. Having crossed the swamp, Key's divisions took up a defensive position at Glendale, facing west and guarding the exit from the swamp. McClellan next ordered Fitz John Porter's battered Fifth Corps to begin its retreat. It would be a long march for many of the soldiers of those three divisions. Morrill's division, the survivors of Hood's and Longstreet's breakthrough at Gaines's Mill, made relatively good time because they marched ahead of the supply wagons, and reached Glendale before dark on Saturday. Porter's other divisions wouldn't have as smooth a journey. Sykes' division began marching late Saturday afternoon and got stuck behind the Army's wagon train, which was a tangled mess. Sykes decided to try an alternate route, but the guide couldn't find the right passage in the darkness, and at 2 a.m. on Sunday morning, the division was still strung out along the road when a torrential rainstorm of biblical proportions hit the column, making the march even more miserable for those federal soldiers who had fought such a stubborn retreat in the face of D.H. Hill's assault on Friday. McCall's division was the last of Porter's troops to set off, at about 8 p.m. on Saturday. He had to follow the route already taken by the supply train and by Morrill and Sykes, and McCall's march would be made in fitful starts and stops, and was incredibly demoralizing and tiring. The thunderstorm guaranteed that for those defenders of Gaines's mill, the misery level of this difficult march through the darkness would only increase. On Saturday afternoon, Israel Richardson's division of Edwin Sumner's 2nd Corps, which was facing Magruder, sent its supply and baggage wagons to Savage Station. 
With them went all the wounded and sick that were in Second Corps hospitals. They would increase the total number of wounded soldiers at the large field hospital at Savage Station to more than 3,000. Many of those wounded men would be in no condition to be taken along on the Army's retreat to the James. On Sunday morning, carrying out McClellan's order that, in conjunction with the Army's retreat, all goods, quote, not indispensable to the safety or maintenance of the troops, must be abandoned and destroyed, end quote, Union soldiers destroyed mountains of supplies at Savage Station by setting the goods on fire. One particularly huge stack of blazing hardtack boxes and provision barrels attracted everyone's attention. One soldier compared it in size to several large barns pushed together. One of the last trains to come from White House Landing and not yet unloaded was set afire on a siding at the station. A second train, loaded with ammunition, was destroyed by setting it afire, and after tying the throttle down, it was sent rushing down the tracks toward the Chickahominy to plunge at full speed off the demolished bridge into the river. And then, in the most shameful consequence of Little Mac's decision to retreat, nearly 2,500 wounded Union soldiers were abandoned at the Savage Station Field Hospital. Little Mac, meanwhile, had shifted his headquarters from Savage Station to the far side of White Oak Swamp. He left orders for the rear guard's retreat, but appointed no one to command it in his absence. McClellan had simply ordered Sumner, Heinzelman, and Franklin to withdraw their corps from their advanced positions to a new line of defenses west of Savage Station. These orders, however, didn't sit well with everyone, and not just Phil Kearney, who had already given Little Mac a piece of his mind the night before. Private Robert Knox Sneeden of Samuel Heinzelman's Third Corps, who made his way to Savage Station during the night's rain, noted that, quote, a general feeling of despondency prevailed, which was enhanced by the rainstorm and the knowledge that the morning would bring another battle, and that we would probably retreat through White Oak Swamp whether we repulsed the enemy or not. Second Corps Commander Bull Sumner also found the idea of retreating disagreeable, and he refused to pull his men all the way back to Savage Station. On Sunday morning, he withdrew back only to Allen's farm, two miles in front of Savage Station. This was the beginning of a communications breakdown throughout the Army of the Potomac. The breakdown was caused by McClellan's decision to not designate a single commander to oversee the retreat, which was probably due to the fact that Little Mac disliked Sumner, who was technically his second-in-command. At any rate, at 9 a.m. on Sunday morning, Sumner engaged in a fight with elements of Magruder's advancing Confederates for nearly two hours before falling back to the spot where he was supposed to be. But Sumner had to be persuaded to fall back. While he was fighting, he hadn't communicated with Heinzelman on his left, who continued to move toward Savage Station. On his right, 6th Corps Commander William Franklin realized that a single division under Baldy Smith was left guarding a wide gap between the river and Sumner. Franklin recognized that Smith would be isolated if the Confederates attacked. Even more disturbing, when Franklin searched for his other division, led by Henry Slocum, he learned that it was already well on its way to White Oak Swamp. Little Mac had ordered it away without even bothering to inform Franklin. And so Franklin sent a note to Sumner, suggesting that Sumner fall back to his assigned position so as to secure both flanks but Sumner condescendingly replied that he was in action with the enemy and would not break off the fight. But after consulting with Heinzelman and Baldy Smith, Franklin rode to Sumner's position to personally urge the stubborn general to fall back lest Smith's division be cut off. Sumner conceded Franklin's point, and he broke off the fight about 11 a.m. By 1 o'clock on Sunday afternoon, therefore, the Union rear guard's defensive line at Savage Station was unified. But Heinzelman was the next general to decide to obey his own inner commander and not bother to tell his fellow corps commanders what he was doing. You see, when Heinzelman arrived at Savage Station, he observed that the area, quote, was crowded with troops, more than I suppose could be brought into action judiciously, end quote. 
And so, having decided that Sumner and Franklin could fend off whatever force the rebels threw at Savage Station, Heinzelman struck off south for White Oak Swamp. He didn't bother to inform Sumner or Franklin of his decision, even though each of them expected Heinzelman to hold the left flank. Because of the thick woods in that sector of the Union line, that is, the area south of Savage Station, no one could actually see the Third Corps, but they naturally assumed Heinzelman was where he was supposed to be. They didn't discover otherwise until it was almost too late, when in the late afternoon, Confederate brigades began to threaten that exposed and vulnerable left flank. On the afternoon of June 28th, we were ordered to pack up everything but shelter tents, and at nightfall these were struck, and we lay on the ground without covering. The trains had been going to the south all day, and at dark the sick and disabled were also sent away, and at early daylight the morning of June 29th, leaving our picket line, we marched in the rear of the army. The roads were blocked with masses of moving troops, impeded farther along by wagons and artillery, and in the dense mist of morning, very slow progress was made. We had advanced about three miles, when at nine o'clock a.m. our picket was forced back, followed by the enemy under the active and alert Magruder. This force attacked at once, as we formed near the peach orchard on Allen's farm. The fighting was sharp for a brief time, though the attack mainly fell on troops just to the right of our regiment, and but little of the enemy's fire, save from artillery, reached us. After several repulses, the enemy fell back, and our army proceeded on its way. Moving on, we reached Savage Station about 1 o'clock p.m., and were massed with a considerable body of the Second Corps near the road leading across White Oak Swamp. The remainder of the army had passed on, and a large amount of material at the railroad bridge was being destroyed. When the bridge with engines and trains upon it was blown up, an immense body of dense smoke arose, assuming perfectly symmetrical and continually changing forms and colors, beautiful and grand to view, and whatever form it took, like the changes in a kaleidoscope, and observed by all for several minutes before it was dissipated. About four o'clock the rebels ran down the railroad, a heavy gun, mounted upon a flat car, and protected by railroad iron, and opened on our troops. This was followed closely by infantry and other artillery, The 1st Minnesota and General Burns' brigade of our division were ordered to the point of attack, and soon drove off the enemy. But Confederate infantry at once appeared on another road farther to the left, and we were sent to that point, being joined by other regiments of our brigade. The 1st Minnesota here formed the extreme left of the line, and resisted the heaviest attack, which was made with artillery at canister range, and with infantry extending beyond beyond our left flank, which was in great danger of being turned. The attack here was most persistent and severe, and as we got the enemy's fire diagonally, as well as from the front, our loss was considerable. Private John G. Sonderman, 1st Minnesota, Sully's Brigade We then crossed over to the York River Railroad, upon which we had what our men called our railroad gun, a siege piece mounted on a flat car with an engine back of it the front of the car being protected by rails of track fastened upon an incline, the mouth of the gun projecting a little as from an embrasure. As it puffed up, a number of Federal batteries, invisible to us, opened upon it and upon the troops, and General Magruder sent an order for our guns to cross the railroad by the bridge nearby and come into battery in the smooth, hard field beyond. We executed this dashing feat in gallant style, our captain riding ahead, the pieces in a wild gallop, and the men on a wild run following. Again we seemed to be in full sight of an unseen enemy, for the bridge was raked and swept by a fearful storm of shot and shell. I distinctly remember the shells bursting in my very face, and the bridge must have been struck repeatedly, the great splinters hurtling past and cutting the air like flashes of lightning, yet no one was hurt. Once across we were ordered, forward into battery, left oblique, march which elaborate movement was executed by the men as if on drill. 
I could not refrain from glancing around and was amazed to see every piece, limber, caisson, and man in the exact mathematical position in which each belonged, and every man seemed to have struck the very attitude required by the drill book. And there we all stood, raked by a terrific fire to which we could not reply, being really a second line, the first, consisting of infantry alone, having passed into the dense, forbidding forest in front, feeling for the enemy. Private Robert A. Stiles, Richmond Howitzers, Griffiths Brigade. Late afternoon on Sunday, June 29th, the rebel brigades that began threatening the exposed and vulnerable Union left flank at Savage Station were from Magruder's command, and their rather timid advance was the result of a long day of confusion, misunderstood orders, and mismanagement on the Confederate side of the lines. Prince John was one of the root causes of the confusion, and the origin of his troubles really began on Thursday, June 26th, when he first feared that McClellan would realize the Federals had an overwhelming advantage south of the Chickahominy and would storm through the thin rebel lines and into Richmond. On both Thursday and Friday, Magruder, following Lee's orders, did his best to mislead the Yankees into believing that not only was his force much stronger than it actually was, but that he also had in aggressive intentions. Magruder played this role to perfection, and as y'all know, was more successful than he ever could have expected to be, since Little Mac was paralyzed, expecting a Confederate attack south of the Chickahominy to materialize at any moment. But Magruder's days and nights were filled with anxiety, and Prince John found it impossible to sleep, and, as we mentioned previously on the podcast, the stress caused him to suffer from a severe case of upset tummy all of which made him uncharacteristically irritable. In the aftermath of Gaines Mill, Saturday, June 28th, wasn't a relaxing day for Magruder, even though he was now back in contact with the remainder of the army north of the Chickahominy, thanks to the recently captured and repaired New Bridge. On Saturday, now that McClellan's entire force was south of the river, Magruder saw this as only increasing the danger to his thinly stretched command defending Richmond, and Lee's continuous stream of messages ordering him to hold at all cost did little to calm Prince John's churning stomach. On Saturday, when Lee ordered Magruder to push the enemy if he was moving, Magruder prepared to launch an attack on Golding's farm the next day. But, as you guys already know from this episode, the Yankees obligingly withdrew before Magruder had a chance to attack. Longstreet's engineer officers found the enemy position at Golding's farm abandoned because the Yankees obeyed orders to fall back two miles to Savage Station, where Magruder's troops could see great columns of black smoke rising into the sky from mountains of burning supplies. After sunrise on Sunday morning, as we mentioned before, Robert E. Lee crossed the Chickahominy at New Bridge to personally explain Magruder's orders to him. Lee had no reason to complain about Prince John's performance so far, but now the Army commander wanted to make sure that Magruder understood exactly what was expected of him. As Lee outlined his plan, the two men rode along Nine Mile Road to Fair Oak Station. At that point, Lee asked Magruder if he understood the plan, and Prince John said yes, but he clearly hadn't grasped everything Lee had said. Right, because although Magruder understood that he had the primary responsibility for the pursuit of the retreating Yankees, he was under the erroneous impression that Uget was going to be on the Williamsburg Road on his right flank, when in fact Uget was to march down the Charles City Road to Glendale. Magruder also believed that he was to act in concert with Stonewall Jackson on his left, though that's not what Lee intended. Lee meant for Magruder to initiate the Confederate pursuit, and Jackson would support him as Stonewall crossed the Chickahominy. As Robert E. Lee rode off on this already hot Sunday morning to brief Fouget on the day's plan, Magruder faced the enemy on his own again, and he showed hesitation and confusion throughout the day. As Magruder's troops moved forward, his leading elements encountered Sumner's 2nd Corps drawn up at Allen's Farm, two miles west of Savage Station. 
But Magruder didn't press Sumner vigorously, and as y'all already know, Sumner withdrew at 11 a.m. after Franklin talked with him. Not only had Magruder not pressed forward energetically as Lee wished, but the skirmishing with Sumner, in which only two Georgia regiments had been involved on the Confederate side, had rattled Prince John and convinced him he was about to be attacked by a large force. Magruder sent his aide, Major Joseph Brent, racing off to find Lee and beg for assistance from Mouget. Lee could scarcely believe that McClellan was launching a major attack while he was retreating, but the Confederate commander agreed to send two brigades, although only with a time limit. If they weren't fighting by 2 p.m., Lee said, they were to return to Uget, since Uget needed to get to Glendale before nightfall. Shortly before he sent Major Brent off to Lee, Magruder had sent another messenger to Stonewall Jackson to learn of his progress. Fully expecting Jackson's force to have crossed the Chickahominy by that time, the increasingly agitated Prince John was dismayed to learn that Stonewall was behind schedule in rebuilding the bridge and would be delayed. And so although Magruder knew that Lee expected him to press forward vigorously, he instead decided to wait for Uget to arrive on his right and Jackson to take up position on his left. The problem was that Magruder fundamentally misunderstood what his role on the 29th was supposed to be. The crucial element for Robert E. Lee was time. Lee wanted Magruder to press forward without delay and engage the enemy. He didn't expect Magruder to single-handedly destroy the enemy army. He simply wanted Prince John to force the Union rear guard to stop their retreat and deal with the threat, while A.P. Hill, Longstreet, and Uget were marching to reach Glendale. Magruder's role was to tie down the Union forces north of White Oak Swamp and in that way delay their retreat, even if he sacrificed most of his 14,000-man division to do so. For Magruder, the early afternoon brought more bad news. While waiting for Jackson to cross the river, the hour slipped by and two o'clock came with no fighting. At that time, Uget informed Magruder that he was recalling his two brigades as per Lee's instructions. Shortly after that news, Magruder received an especially unwelcome note from Stonewall that stated mysteriously that he wouldn't be able to cooperate with Magruder because he, quote, has other important duties to perform, end quote. And so Magruder realized that he had to carry out Lee's pursuit orders with no help from either flank. What was the other important duty that Stonewall Jackson had to perform? Well, it was actually a product of further miscommunication and confusion of orders. You see, Lee had briefed Jackson on his plan Sunday morning before Lee set out to meet up with Magruder. But later that morning, Lee had his chief of staff, Colonel R.H. Chilton, draw up an order to send to Jeb Stewart. Lee wanted to guard against the remote possibility that McClellan would try to cross the Chickahominy further downstream, and so he ordered Stewart to monitor the crossings while, quote, advising General Jackson, who will resist their passage until reinforced, end quote. Jeb Stewart forwarded that message to Stonewall Jackson after he received it, and Jackson had it in his hand shortly after 3 p.m., Stonewall erroneously interpreted it to mean that he was no longer to join the pursuit south of the Chickahominy, but instead was to remain north of the river. This was a strange conclusion to reach, since Lee never sent him a direct order to that effect, and Lee later admitted that Jackson's interpretation was a mistake. In sending those orders to Jeb Stewart, Lee was just drawing up a contingency plan, but he obviously meant for any federal crossing to be contested by Jackson from south of the river, after he had crossed it. Of course, even before that mix-up, Stonewall Jackson had been moving very slowly and crossing the river anyway. Lee had expected Jackson's crossing would occur in short order that morning, but Stonewall was repeating his lack lackluster performance from the previous days. For whatever reason, Jackson simply didn't make the bridge repairs an urgent matter that Sunday morning. There were actually two bridges under repair, the Grapevine Bridge and the Alexander Bridge 400 yards upstream. 
In an army full of West Point graduates with training in engineering, Jackson unaccountably sent the unqualified Reverend Dabney to lead the construction party. Not surprisingly, the business went poorly, and Jackson only belatedly sent his engineer officer, Captain C.R. Mason, to fix the problem. During the course of that business, though, Jackson must have still been confident that he would get across, since he sent Magruder that message shortly after 12 o'clock, saying that he was delayed, but would be finished in a couple of hours. But then at 3 p.m., Jeb Stewart's courier arrived with the dispatch that persuaded Jackson to stay on the north side of the river, and Stonewall informed Magruder that he would be unable to assist him. Once again, the Jackson of the Valley campaign seemed to be missing. That Stonewall Jackson would have crossed his brigades on a rope bridge if necessary to get them into position to pursue a retreating foe. But this Jackson was content not to press the bridge construction, and he ultimately let pass a chance to attack a retreating enemy. On the 29th, Jackson, like Magruder, must have also misunderstood Lee's plan and the urgency it required. Jackson apparently never understood his role in Lee's plan for Sunday, or presumably he would have moved more quickly to get across the river. At four o'clock on Sunday afternoon, Magruder realized that he had lost the aid of Uget and now of Stonewall Jackson, but he knew that Lee's orders to him were to pursue the Yankees to his front. And so fed up by the frustrating sequence of events, Magruder ordered his troops to move forward and his commanders to attack any enemy force they met, no matter the odds. And the odds were much better by 5 p.m. than they had been a few hours earlier, since not only had Heinzelman marched south, but mid-afternoon, Baldy Smith, who had been holding down the right flank at Savage Station, decided that his services were no longer needed, since the Confederates didn't appear to be attacking, and he also began marching his division toward White Oak Swamp. That meant Sumner would face Magruder's 14,000 men with his 16,000-man corps, but with practically no support. It's worth noting that even a late crossing of the river, an appearance here by Stonewall Jackson, would have likely spelled the doom of Sumner's 2nd Corps, but Stonewall had already called it a day. The first of Magruder's troops to make contact with the Yankees were those in Joseph Kershaw's South Carolina Brigade, which was the leading unit of Lafayette McClaw's division. They were spotted by Generals Franklin and John Sedgwick, who were riding out to pay a visit to Heinzelman. They initially mistook Kershaw's rebels for Heinzelman's corps, but quickly realized their mistake and galloped off, and it was only in this way that Sumner discovered that Heinzelman's Third Corps was no longer in the Union line at Savage Station. As Kershaw's brigade emerged from the woods on the western side of a cleared field in front of Savage Station, it did so with the sun at its back. Kershaw's left flank rested on the railroad, and his right was north of the Williamsburg Road. On the left flank, he had some heavy artillery on the railroad for support. You see, Robert E. Lee had ordered the construction of a 32-pound naval gun mounted on a railroad car. It was dubbed the Land Merrimack. It was supposed to disrupt McClellan's use of the railroad as Little Mac brought forward his big siege guns. Protected by a crude iron shield, the rebel contraption was impressive but ineffective, and this was its only major use in the campaign. Kershaw's Confederates advanced, breaking through the initial Union line, and as the fight progressed, Paul Sims' brigade arrived on Kershaw's right, straddling the Williamsburg Road and extending the rebel battle line well to the south of that byway. Bull Sumner, watching the enemy's advance, sent forward individual regiments from several different brigades that just happened to be nearest to him. The corps commander even led one of the regiments personally to the front. To Sem's right was Richard Griffith's brigade, commanded in Griffith's absence by William Barksdale. This brigade had difficulty extending the Confederate right and engaging the Yankees due to the disorienting and dense woods. In fact, in the confusion of the forest, several of the rebel regiments who were going into combat for the first time fired on friendly units before they finally got straightened out and met the enemy. 
In the end, only half of Barksdale's men even found the Yankees before darkness put an end to the fighting. The disappearance of Heinzelman's corps left Sumner's southern flank in a vulnerable position, and a stronger attack by Magruder may have made some significant gains. But Sumner recalled Baldy Smith's errant division and ordered it to fill the void south of the Williamsburg Road. Smith's cl- closest brigade under William T.H. Brooks turned about and raced back to the threatened spot. On this sweltering Sunday, Brooks' men pitched into the thick woods and met Confederate fire that was every bit as hot as the weather. Brooks' brigade lost nearly 450 casualties, and the 5th Vermont lost nearly half its strength in the fighting, but they held the line. Firing continued along this three-brigade front in a stalemate until 9 p.m., Magruder had ridden to the front and inspected the enemy's position and decided it would be useless to send in his remaining brigades. And so the fighting slowly died away in the darkness, leaving between 600 and 1,000 Union casualties and between 375 and 475 Confederates. Despite having three divisions under his command, Magruder only got nine regiments, or barely more than 3,000 men, into the fight. The action had ended for the day with results far short of what Robert E. Lee had anticipated. Frustrated by the delays and failures, Lee couldn't hide his disappointment when he sent Magruder a strongly worded note that night. Lee wrote, I regret much that you have made so little progress today in pursuit of the enemy. In order to reap the fruits of our victory, the pursuit should be most vigorous. Lee undoubtedly used Magruder as the target for his frustration with everyone, including Stonewall Jackson, who failed to cross the river and do his crucial part in the pursuit. But Lee may have also singled out Magruder because he expected much more from him on the 29th. At any rate, the key to Lee's anger was in the concluding statement of his dispatch, and this applied to all of his commanders. Quote, we must lose no more time, or he will escape us entirely. End quote. And once again, it's worth stressing that time was the crucial element in Lee's plan, and Prince John Magruder and Stonewall Jackson had failed to grasp that fact. Confederate success on Sunday depended on rapid movement to close with and tie down a significant portion of the retreating enemy army, but Magruder's late and half-hearted advance and Stonewall Jackson's lethargic performance ensured the failure of Lee's plan on Sunday. Ultimately, however, Robert E. Lee must shoulder much of the blame for what occurred and didn't occur on the 29th. The fact that both Magruder and Jackson so fundamentally misunderstood his plan indicates that perhaps he must not have explained it very clearly to either of them. Lee also didn't send explicit written orders to either general, as he had on the 26th. And once again, Lee didn't utilize his staff to investigate delays or prod his commanders into action. Although on Sunday Magruder engaged the enemy to little benefit and Stonewall Jackson dawdled on the Chickahominy, all the other Confederates were marching. The divisions of Longstreet and A.P. Hill spent a long and largely uneventful day crossing the river at Newbridge and marching south, heading for Glendale, the leading elements of this force reached a point about seven miles from Glendale. Their greatest enemies had been the stifling heat and humidity and suffocating dust kicked up by the shoes of nearly 20,000 soldiers using the same road. And then Uge's division was strung out along the Charles City Road, largely because Lee had ordered him to send those two brigades to support Magruder until 2 p.m., And so by dark, Uge's lead elements were only at the Jordan's Ford intersection on the Charles City Road, still well short of their destination at Glendale. While the Confederates finally settled down for the night in scattered locations, many Union soldiers got no rest that night. For them, it was another night of marching over unfamiliar roads in the muggy darkness. Though already south of the swamp, Key's Corps marched all night to reach Haxel's Landing on the James River. 
Slocum's division of Franklin's Corps and McCall's division of Porter's Command guarded the Glendale Crossroads, while Porter's other two divisions under Morrell and Sykes made their way down to Malvern Hill, almost three miles south of Glendale. That left only the Union troops at Savage Station, who McClellan ordered to retreat down the White Oak Swamp Road that night. Most of these men hadn't had time to eat anything all day and now had to march many miles to cross the swamp. To make matters worse, a violent thunderstorm drenched them throughout much of the night. Private Sneeden described it as, quote, very confusing and demoralizing, end quote. Three thousand wagons were mixed in with infantry, cavalry, and artillery on the stretch of road in a pouring rain, and another Union soldier summed up the miserable night by saying, quote, March and wait, and march and wait, then countermarch. May you never experience how tired we were. End quote. The last of the Federals finally finished crossing the swamp shortly before 10 a.m. on Monday morning. It had been an exhausting night, but most of the tired Union soldiers wouldn't get any rest on Monday, because if Robert E. Lee had his way, the upcoming fight for the crucial crossroads at Glendale meant that June 30th was going to be every bit as grueling and punishing as any day of the campaign thus far. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is To the Gates of Richmond by Stephen W. Sears. Sears' book is generally considered to be the definitive one-volume account of the peninsula and the seven days, so it's really a must-have for your Civil War library. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Then as we close, we want to be sure to thank some new members, Steve, Michael, Steve, and Dave and Kate, and Peter. Thanks, y'all. And thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope you'll join us again next time when we look at the next of the Seven Days Battles at Glendale. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.